lovely betwixters. It's me, Kate Lister. I am here with your fair dues warning to protect you from the absolute filth and debauchery that is going to assail you on this podcast. And if you haven't been here before, what is a fair dues warning? A fair dues warning is where I give you a warning that this is an adult podcast spoken by adults to other adults about adult subjects in an adulty way. So if you continue to listen to this, and you happen to get offended by any of that adult content, then you just have to go, fair dues. She did tell us that it would be a bit rude. And it is a bit rude today because we are talking about none other than my personal historical crush. Oh, it's Lord Byron. Mad, bad and dangerous to know. And oh, I could have saved him if only I'd had the chance. <laughs> so he will definitely be veering into naughty territory. But I'm game if you are. So we'll go no more a-roving so late into the night, though the heart be still as loving and the moon be still as bright. For the sword outwears its sheath and the soul wears out the breast and the heart must pause to breathe and love itself have rest. Though the night was made for loving and the day returns too soon, yet we'll go no more a-roving by the light of the moon. Ah, the words of Lord Byron. And by the time he wrote those words in 1817, I think he was of the opinion maybe he'd done a little bit too much roving. So what exactly did he mean by a roving? How did Byron come to be the utter menace to society that he eventually was? Was he really mad, bad and dangerous to know? Well, today we're going to slide betwixt the damp sheets in Byron's home in Newstead Abbey to find out. What do you look for, man? Oh, money, of course. <laughs> You're supposed to rise when an adult speaks to you. I make perfect copies of whatever my boss needs by just turning a knob and pushing the button. Yes, social courtesy does make a difference. Goodness, what beautiful time. Goodness has nothing to do with it, dearie. Hello and welcome back to Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex scandal in society with me, Kate Lister. Alluring, dark, mysterious, moody. No, not me. As if this is what it means to be Byronic. We could distill that down a little bit further and just the bad boy, the archetypal, moody, aloof, unavailable, clever, damaged, tortured, artisty type that so many people go weak at the knees for, myself included, I'm afraid, but don't worry, I am working on this particular failing. But how many people in history have actual words in the dictionary based on them and their philandering? I'm probably not going to search the dictionary to find out, but I know that you'd have to make a pretty big impact in the world to get there. Today, Emily Brand is on the podcast to introduce us to the mad, the bad, the dangerous to know, to Byron himself and his very, very messy family. Hello and welcome to Betwixt the Sheets. It's only Emily Brand. How are you? Hi, I'm very well, thank you. It's nice to finally chat with you. I was trying to think, Kate, I don't know, you might not remember this. We have met in person one time, but you had just been handed some anal beads by E.L. James. <gasps> oh my God! 
right. She got me smashed on gin. <laughs> You're absolutely right. Do you know, no, I was just thinking that I had no chance, really, of trying to have a conversation with you because oh, you were God. just fondling these anal beads. And that's not something I thought I'd say on a recording. But That is uh, that just came back to me like a bolt out of the flashback that did <laughs> of you being there. Of E.L. James, the <laughs> anal beads and the gin. Yeah. And that was Rebecca Riddell's fault, wasn't it? That mm-hmm. was, she organised, oh God, flashbacks. Right. Great events. Oh, well, that's a fabulous way that we met then. That's, that's mm, a hell of a yeah. story. I love that. <laughs> Brilliant. But it's actually quite a nice opener for the fellow that we're going to talk about, because I reckon that would be, that would just be a pretty boring Tuesday for, for my historical crush, Byron. Oh, is he? Oh, interesting. I think the more you know about him, the more you go off him, probably. <laughs> oh, do you know, it's some kind of deep-rooted psychological issue with me that a therapist needs to drag out. Is The more I learn about him, the more I'm like, oh, he's an absolute shit. The more there's yeah. someone in me going, I can fix him. I could save him. Oh, I think this was the downfall of many a young lady in the Regency. But... <laughs> <laughs> it's a historically authentic experience you're having of Byron. I think it is. Of Byron, of just like, what was it about this man? And I'm really hoping that you can shed a bit of light on it because the only consolation I can take away from it is I know I'm not the only one to have had this reaction <laughs> to this particular sure. person. Yeah. So let's start a really basic page one question. Who was Lord Byron? So Lord Byron, we are talking the Regency era. I know you've done some episodes on the Regency already. So he was born in 1788 and he lived through to 1824. So that's his lifespan. And he's basically known kind of nowadays as one of the first celebrities in British history. Obviously, he's a romantic poet. So he's a leading figure in that sort of romantic movement that we see at this time. He's basically a rock star of his day. For me, the most interesting thing about him is his love life. It's probably not very scholarly of me, but, you know, he's known for his seductions and his reputation with ladies and gentlemen as well. He was, wasn't he? He obviously died young because that just seems to be, you have to do that if you want to be an iconic rock star. That's the goal. Uh, Right? I mean, he wasn't 27. How old was he when he died? He was 36, but from the age, certainly, of you know, his early 30s, he was constantly writing about how God is so old and tired and he, he might as well be dead now and he wished he was dead and all this kind of stuff. So he very much was into that live fast, die young vibe. I think he was, wasn't he? Yeah. What kind of stuff did he write about? Because it's very easy to forget that Byron actually did writing at the same Oh, he wrote stuff as well. Yes, he did. Yeah. What was he writing? <laughs> what was he writing about? I mean, it's weird because he's one of the, we don't study him in school in this country, as far as I'm aware, maybe higher ed, obviously, but, you know, we do Shakespeare. In other countries and around the world, he's, I think, the second most read writer in English worldwide. Really? For his reputation, I've heard that. So, yes, in his youth, he kind of, he starts writing poetry as a very young man. And a lot of that is to do with a kind of just melancholy ideal that he's got about himself and this starts young his ancestry Newstead Abbey which is his family seat in Nottinghamshire he inherits that when he's 10 and he's immediately taken up with the ghosts of Newstead and the sort of inevitable creep towards the grave and all this kind of thing obviously we see love poetry to cousins usually early doors and then other women obviously constantly throughout his life but he what he became famous for was a poem an epic poem of 1812 called child harold's pilgrimage and it's this where he's basically been traveling around europe and you know greece and turkey and all these places and he is semi-autobiographically writing about his adventures and 
it's very cheeky. There's a lot of sex going on in there. There's a lot of doom. And this is kind of his persona that he mm. creates and this kind of long form poetry creating this bad boy that, as you say, women are going to want to reform. He's so handsome and all this business. So that's kind of what his main kind of poetic writing is about. And incest, which I'm sure we'll come on to, but this incest creeps in all the time. That went to a funny place very quickly. <laughs> he was writing about travelling and incest as oh, well. Yeah. Was <laughs> Sorry, I had to throw that one in because it just occurred. <laughs> yeah. He's a very odd duck. Right, don't, right, we'll get into this. And the whole time I'm still thinking, but maybe he's just misunderstood. No, Kate, he's not. He, he probably wasn't that nice. You know, we should talk about where he came from, who his family were. Because I think this is one of the very seductive things about Byron is he is an aristocrat, <laughs> like lived in sort of a gothic, castle type of a get-up, descended from noble titles. And that's quite seductive, isn't it? But tell me about his family. Who are they? For sure, yeah. So, I mean, most of my work has actually been about his early ancestry. It's kind of a prequel to him. And I was just kind of dabbling at first because I was interested in the poet. And then every ancestor that I found, I was like, oh, shit, that's... That's even better than the poet, kind of that story. Really? Like they weren't just quite normal, boring people? No. So his dad died when he was very young. He abandoned the family when I think he was one and a half, two, and then died when he was about three. So he was brought up by his mum in Scotland in this kind of dilapidated estate with not much money near Aberdeen. So that's not a very glamorous start. And at that point, he's not due to inherit the title at all. So he's just living this Scottish school life but then his life is thrown into disarray when he inherits Newstead Abbey and this title to become the sixth Lord Byron in 1798. So it's an aristocratic family obviously the Byrons are sort of at the bottom of the ladder of aristocracy they're barons Mm. and what he inherits is this absolute ruin of an abbey basically no money because it's all been run through and that's it really they can't afford to move in or anything like that. I didn't know that he just inherited a sort of a because if somebody said you've inherited an abbey, you'd be like, fuck yeah, they're an act, but it's kind of shit and no one can live there. Then it's like, oh, pounds. Yeah. There were like cows in the basement <laughs> and straw everywhere and parts of it had no roof. It's like, but this is what he loved about it when he took that first tour. Oh, did and, he? You know, it's got that gothic devastation. It does. It's like, I can't remember what he says now. It's like the, the line of decay of both his house that he's inherited and of his family, which at the beginning of the 18th century, was on the up. They had a beautiful house, amazing art collection. And then by the time he inherits, it's the ruins of something. Where did it go? This is where the fifth Lord Byron comes in. This is his great uncle that he inherits. Right. So this is one dude who's basically run through an entire fortune, his wife's entire fortune, and has ended up with nothing. So the fifth Lord Byron, fascinating character a very violent character as well. His most famous achievement in life was killing someone and having a murder trial. Yeah, so there's a lot going on. So he's a bit of a shit? Awful. Terrible shit, Kate. Terrible. (laughs) Okay, what's he spending this money on? I mean, that's it's a lot of money, isn't it? Like the kind of money Mm -hmm. that can buy abbeys and art and things. What's he spending that on? Boats. (laughs) He likes to have ships constructed to sort of mess about with on his lake, the lake at Newstead, which is beautiful. Uh, women, right. gambling, all your stereotypical horse racing he loves. I think that might be part of it. He's just spaffing it up the wall, isn't he? Okay. Spaffing it. Yeah, beautifully put. <laughs> <laughs> the academic in me. 
Right, come on, come on, we've been proper historians. Okay. Sorry, sorry. So the fortune, the Byron fortune is basically done with by the time the future poet inherits because of this previous generation, previous two generations being sort of dissipated and dreadful. So there's basically his grandparents' generation and then his dad's generation who have got no control whatsoever over themselves, sexually or financially. What was his dad like? His dad was, I would say, the worst. Oh. <laughs> Just the worst. <laughs> Flatline the worst bloke. Oh, no. Yeah, it's interesting because we know about him because of the poet and because the poet became so notorious and so famous. And so every biography that was written about the poet has a little section at the beginning about his family and, and his dad. And his dad was always painted as a wastrel and scapegrace. All these words come out. He'd, with one wife, apparently dying of a broken heart because of his cruelty. Ooh. And then he abandons his second wife, who is the poet's mother. So he had a terrible reputation posthumously known as Mad Jack Byron. Wow. And part of what I've been wanting to do in my research was to find someone who's got such a bad reputation and try and rehabilitate them a bit. And I tried that with Jack and this, it was just got worse. The more <laughs> I got into the 18th century records, I mean, privately, he was worse than he was publicly. Oh, no. What was he doing privately? He was having sex with his sister. Fuck. OK, yeah, yeah. that's not rehabilitatable. No. <laughs> no. And, and <laughs> just, I told you, incest is going to come up a lot. You did. Yeah. But the one most fascinating source for my book was Jack's letters to his sister, Fanny. Oh, she's called Fanny. Oh, no. Well, they didn't stand a chance, did they? No. <laughs> right. So this, all his correspondence, which is in the Bodleian Library, is still preserved. And it's after he's abandoned his wife and the young boy, the poet, He's living in France. Um, the revolution's happening, but he's not really noticed because he's too busy having sex with everything and everyone that he sees, uh, certainly every woman that he sees, I'll clarify there. But he's writing to Fanny and he's saying things like, I'm having sex with all these people, but the only person I can think of when I do anything extraordinary is how he puts it. I only think of you. So he's basically saying, I can only orgasm. When I think of you oh, no. Oh, no. and you're the most beautiful oh. woman I've ever known. And I'm so angry that you're my sister. And he says these oh. things repeatedly. It's the whole tenor of this batch of many, many letters, basically. And I think that the fact that his sister isn't then cutting him off, you know, she's clearly writing back. She's clearly kind of encouraging this type of conversation. So I just I'm quite convinced that they were um, that they were actually sexually involved. Yeah. At oh. some point. And this is his full sister. I mean, maybe we'll talk about the poet and his half-sister later, but this is Jack Byron and his full sister, Fanny. I mean, God forbid, even the thought of it upsets me greatly, but if my brother ever wrote me a note with something like that, it would, it would just, Mum! Mum! <laughs> Tell him to stop! Mum! I don't like it! It would just... But you're right. Like... If there's a lot of these letters, yeah. that sort of suggests... But there's nothing that we've got in her voice, is there? Sadly not. All we can hear of her voice is him then complaining, saying, why did you say that? I hate it when you tell me that you've got a new lover because I can only think of you. And wow. So, yes, maybe one day letters will be discovered in some French archive, which would be amazing. But he doesn't seem ashamed. Of, like, if he's writing about this quite openly in letters, I mean, admittedly, he probably didn't expect them to end up in a museum and being spoken about on a podcast, but... Me poking them, yeah. 
it's not super private, is it? That, like, he doesn't seem to be very ashamed of this. I mean, you're right. I, we have very few letters that I'm aware of to anyone else apart from to his sister, to his parents just being awful and to their financial agent demanding money. So he's kind of how he might talk to other people isn't necessarily captured. But in these ones to his sister, he's very proud of this kind of thing that he's saying. He's He'll repeat himself over and over again. And he's very proud of, for example, beating up his servants, wow. throwing women down the stairs if they've had too much to drink and he's angry. All around awful guy, I would say. Awful. Yeah, by anyone's standards. You can't even make the argument, oh, things were different back then. <clears throat> they weren't that different. Oh, no. Terrible guy. Terrible guy. Horrible. Okay, so he's absolutely deranged. I was going to say, do we know why he left Byron's mum? But I feel that you may have answered that. <laughs> but was there anything that happened or was it just that he was a shit and he just does these things? <laughs> well, they were married in the first place only for money on his side. Oh. So he never loved. She was called Catherine Gordon. She was an heiress. She was very young. I think she was about 18 when they met. And they met in Bath. She was kind of struck with how charming a dancer he was. And he's very, very handsome. Before any of this awfulness came out, he was noted in the newspapers as being, oh, Byron has been seen walking about the streets and he's as handsome as ever. And he would just be in the papers for being handsome. Wow. So Catherine was obviously taken in by his face, as we are sometimes, you know, it's a terrible thing, but it happens. So they were married. He got her money, basically, as men acquire a woman's fortune, obviously, or marriage at this time. He spends it, gets in terrible debt, and then goes to France to escape his creditors, basically, leaving them, his wife and infant child, behind. You're right. That just got worse and worse and worse. Yeah. Okay. What was his mum like? What was Catherine Gordon like? Is there any chance at all that she was quite a normal, well-adjusted human being? Well-adjusted isn't the word I use. They had quite a fiery relationship, obviously. He was basically brought up by his mum. She had had a terrible experience with his dad and was very affected by that and would constantly every time that this little boy would do something wrong or show a bit of a temper she would say this is your father this is the Byron in you your father's awful and your family are all dreadful she had a bit of a temper I think she was young still herself and they certainly didn't get on so I think when he was a young man he was desperate to get off to school and to go traveling and it wasn't until she died where he writes this really forlorn letter saying, you know, she was the best friend I ever had and I just didn't realise. So it's really sad. Their relationship's very sad, actually. I think I read somewhere, and maybe this wasn't even about Byron, just something flagged up in the back of my head, that his mother was overweight and it gave him a hideous dislike of people that were overweight throughout his life. She's usually described as kind of romping and round and plump and this is often used for her. I think in a nice way. That, I mean, this portrait of her, that I think it's still at Newstead. She is a larger woman, but that's later in life, so I can't speak to her whole life. But Byron had such a weird relationship with eating and food and dieting and all that throughout his life. Mm. I don't know how much that would be attributable to his mum. I'm not sure. But the thing that's leaping to mind is when he was, uh, I think in his 20s, he had a female lover. He thought she was brilliant. Beautiful, great fun, but she ate food no. in front of him unashamedly and he was disgusted by this. Wow, okay. And he was complaining to one of his friends 
she's perfect except she eats too much like a pig and women should only eat lobster and drink champagne oh, are you serious i think about this <laughs> i mean i partly agree with that but like how it's deployed is very mean if we could just eat lobster and drink champagne then you know great but because byron said so <laughs> yeah but he had really messed up ideas around food mm-hmm. so, like he would go on binge purge sessions and like not eat for long periods of time and then gain lots of weight and yeah. is that yeah. true yeah, I think there's very convincing argument that he had um, struggled with eating disorders basically throughout his whole life. He very severely restricted himself and then would kind of complain that he didn't have any energy to have sex with people. And I guess maybe, that, you know, that after he'd got over that difficult <laughs> moment and that struggle, then he would go back to kind of binging and shagging. So Wow. So when you've been looking at his ancestors, this kind of mad family tree, have you found anyone normal in it? Or are they all quite eccentric and exhibiting challenging behaviour, I think is what we'd say now. (laughs) I think in the 18th century, you go looking for kind of oddness with the aristocracy, you're often going to find it, especially by modern standards. The generation of his grandparents are particularly fascinating to me. There were five of them and three of them kind of formed the focus of my research and they're all exceptional in different ways either for eccentricity or achievement or flirtation very much Byron vibe throughout the 18th century elopement constant incest occasional adultery another constant I don't think any of them remained faithful to their partners men or women obviously women unfaithful women treated very differently to the gallantries of men but yeah there was one clergyman he was vaguely normal. The clergyman, just, just like carrying the banner for, I'm normal, I'm the normal one. Yeah. Hats off to Richard Byron. Thanks, Richard. Thanks, Dick. Oh, God, no, that's terrible. Thanks, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Richard. What happened to Fanny Byron, the one that was having sex with his dad? Yeah. So she was the eldest of, I think, six surviving siblings. So she was kind of the older sister. She was very beautiful. She married in her 20s and had at least one child. She had a son who then went on to marry Byron's half-sister, Augusta, incidentally. Oh, it's a mess, isn't it? This isn't a family tree. This is a shrub. This is just some kind of just like wizened, just integrated. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, trying to draw this. I had it on my wall. Huge. I just, it is a mess. It is a mess. Family Christmases must have been difficult. So she had married and had children or a child, mm. but then she was in the papers for her own affairs and it was constantly, oh, Mrs. Lee, which was her married name, Mrs. Lee has run off with Mr. Whitworth. But then there's no further mention of Mr. Whitworth, but then she's running off with someone else. Like in the papers, she's constantly rumoured to be running off with people. And she lives a long life. I can't recall actually how she ends her days, but in obscurity, I think, which is fairly surprising considering. Wow. I mean... I suppose in her frame of reference is like an affair here or there just pales in comparison to having sex with your brother. So like, yeah, wasn't there one relative? There was a great uncle who was referred to as the wicked Lord or the devil Byron, who is that makes him sound like really scary, but he was actually a massive wimp. (laughs) So yeah, you've distilled him there perfectly. So this is the fifth Lord Byron who the poet inherits from. So that's his great uncle William. And this is the chap I was talking about earlier who spent everything and who became famous for this murder trial. But yeah, he was 
had a reputation for cowardice and this enraged him massively. So I think he was out to prove himself a bit sometimes. So it's just wild, just sort of getting drunk and stabbing to sort of show that he's brave and then ends up killing this distant cousin of his. But yeah, I think that his career early on, we can see this reputation for cowardice comes through. He's off during the Jacobite rebellion. He's joins this local militia and then is off tramping up to what will be the Battle of Culloden. But then just as the battle is about to happen, he kind of goes to his commanding officer and sort of says, oh, I need to go home now. I've got <laughs> no. some personal business. Got to go home. So he, <laughs> he basically runs back off down to Nottinghamshire, gets out of this battle completely. And I think this kind of lays the foundations for this lifelong reputation that he has for being a coward. I don't know why I'm judging it. I don't know if I would go into battle. I think I might have a, oh, I've got a really bad headache. <laughs> Can't possibly go. But that's not a reputation you want carrying around. Yeah, but then just don't go in the first place. You volunteered to go. There you go. See, I would have laid the groundwork long before that. All right, yes, yeah, so he's a bit of a wuss. I can understand why people didn't react particularly well to that. But then to counteract that by just randomly stabbing people. Yeah, I mean, he damns himself there because it's basically they're in a London tavern. These two, they've been lifelong sort of friends and neighbours and cousins. Oh, really? So they know each other well and they're just drinking and they're getting annoyed with each other. They go in a darkened room and a challenge is issued somehow. And then at some point, this fifth Lord Byron just says, oh, they'll not call me a coward now. And then just stabs him. But then because he ends up dying, it causes a bit of an issue. Did he get away with that then? What was the court case? Was was it just him going, are you very rich with the title? Yes. Well, then he probably didn't do it. Was it one of those? Well, essentially, I mean, a lot of people had seen this man not get stabbed, but die on a pool of blood on the floor and Byron stood there with a bloody sword. So he wasn't going to get away scot-free, but there was this huge trial in 1765 and he was ultimately charged just with manslaughter. And then because of his rank as a peer, uh, you know, he's a member of the House of Lords. There's a sort of loophole where he can just pay a bit of money and then he goes on holiday. Wow. How the other half live. I know. So he goes off to Europe and buys a wolf. <laughs> Is that what he sort of does? A wolf? A wolf puppy. I don't know. I, don't know. I mean, why not? Why not? There's No, there's not much more you can say about that. That's what he did. Did he stab anyone else? Or was he just, just still off being a bit of a shit? Yeah, all dreadful. Yeah, being dreadful, awful to his wife just doing what he wants to do. It's this sense of entitlement that you see. Again and again and again. What mm. a wanker. All right, so tell me about Captain John Byron, Byron's grandfather, also known as Foul Weather Jack Byron. Yes. Now, he's the younger brother of this wicked lord, and he kind of tries to take up the mantle of being the noble military man of the family, which he does quite well. And his name is made. He becomes famous as a very young man because he's sent off in the Navy as a midshipman when he's, I think, 16 or 17. And they're sent off to the coast and they end up around Chile. And then they're involved in this awful shipwreck. Hmm. And so the ship is wrecked. I think about 120 of the crew survive. They end up washed up on the shore on this unknown deserted island near Chile. And it's just this amazing survival story. I didn't know this. Yeah, no, it's fascinating. It has been called one of the most harrowing survival stories of the 18th century. He published it when he was older. But this almost falling into cannibalism, lots of them dying of disease. They're on this island. They don't know how to look after themselves. They have these encounters with 
indigenous people who some of them are helpful some of them are understandably quite annoyed that these people have turned up but he I think they're wrecked in 1741 and he gets home in 1746-ish I'm gonna say holy shit like there's a tv series right here oh I'm waiting for that I need this to be honest yeah (laughs) yeah no it's a very harrowing story and as I say it made his name and then when he got back because he was one of the very few who had remained loyal to the captain he'd obviously shown himself to be trustworthy that means that they ate everyone else doesn't it that's what that means <laughs> i mean did he come back looking remarkably well fed and maybe slightly bigger than when he left well he doesn't include that in his account for sure although um no you wouldn't most of the crew basically mutinied and built their own boat and left and i think there were a handful of them i think maybe six who stayed with the captain wow you know that's quite a huge gesture to be like I know you've built this boat and you're going to try and survive but I'm going to stay here the six of us or however many it was to stay with the captain but you know he survived he got back eventually and went on to a glittering career this is wow okay so like almost as bad as the other ones are this guy seems to be quite you know insane but heroically brave as well shipwrecks and cannibalism and yeah in Britain he certainly he was one of the most esteemed admired Navy commanders of the age, and he was involved in the American Revolution. He was given a very prestigious role as a commander in chief over on the Leeward Islands, I think, some sort of West Indian station. But he is someone who, in the 18th century, was very renowned and very admired. And the poet includes this story of a shipwreck, inspires part of one of his most epic poems, Don Juan. And he literally lifts parts from his grandfather's memoir to write the scene of a shipwreck in one of his poems. Did they ever meet? They didn't. So Foulweather Jack, who'd obviously got this nickname because wherever he went, he was pursued by foul weather. I think it's a cool one. Yeah, that works. <laughs> he died in 1786 and then George the Poet was born in 88. So they didn't quite meet, but he was hugely inspired by his grandfather's book and legacy as an adventurer. The morn broke and found Juan slumbering still fast in his cave, and nothing clashed upon his rest, the rushing of the neighbouring rill, and the young beams of the excluded sun troubled him not, and he might sleep his fill. And need he had of slumber yet, for none had suffered more, his hardships were comparative to those related in my grandad's narrative. I'll be back with Emily and Byron after this short break. Join us this month on Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Eleanor Yanaga. This April, dive into our special miniseries. With the help of leading experts, we're tracing the foundations of England by exploring the country's most powerful Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. We'll be looking at Northumbria, Mercia and Wessex, as well as the rulers and their councils who helped shape a nation. Make sure to get every episode by listening and following Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? 
United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful. Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And also remember when you use a messaging apps, they shrink the photos. You cannot print those out. You cannot blow them up. This is high quality imagery going to one of the most important people in your life. The Aura app is super easy to set up. It takes about two minutes and you're going to love it. There's free unlimited storage, add unlimited photos and videos and invite as many people as you want to a frame. Right now, Aura has got a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code DANSNOW at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. I'd like to hear you say all of this, mm. that the one that we remember, the f- most famous Byron, is the poet. And then it kind of makes you think, well, and what the hell was he doing to sort of outshine this catalogue of absolute crazy people, but also quite heroic at the same time? So Byron is growing up in the midst of this. I think we can say dysfunctional fairly confidently. Mm. There's going to be a lot of issues and a lot of hang-ups there. But when does he become famous? I think one of his quotes is, I woke up... And I was famous or something like that, that he that it happened very quickly for him. Yeah. So he's I think he's 24 years old when he kind of is propelled to fame. And this is after the publication of his epic poem, Child Harold. And I'm not sure what it is that catches the public imagination with this book, but it word of mouth, I guess, a bit of excellent marketing from his publisher. But it just sells very quickly. It's just a very appealing persona that he develops in this work that appeals to men and women I think voraciously purchased by ladies is kind of what's mentioned at that time and people go mad for it's very cheeky like it's very well written it's beautifully put together but he's quite cheeky and funny with it as well so I think it appeals Mm. to us I think I mean I'm not a literary historian uh, so for me, I'm, I'm more into his letters than his poetry, but I get the sense that for the time, it was quite conversational, quite chatty, quite easy to get into and fall in love with the main character who, by the way, was based very heavily on himself. So it's kind of blurring the boundaries there and making him popular as an author. When I first read it, I thought it was going to be like Jim Morrison or like Slash from Guns N' Roses. I thought it was going to be that level of like debauchery and kind of like, you know, like the real bad boy image. But it's really not. It's sort of like a sort of a, a nice, vivid, colourful tale of travelling around and sort of having to think about some stuff. But I can understand why the character is appealing because there's a certain forlornness about him. And I guess he is quite sexy in an 18th century 
way. But we've got to talk about his actual sex life because in Child Harold's pilgrimage, it's kind of hinted at. There's little, like a little bit that literary scholars love to get hold of and go, ooh, 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 what, what does this mean? What does that mean? Yeah. But we do kind of know quite a lot about his sex life, don't we? Because he certainly made the papers with this. Oh, he loves chatting about it as well in his letters. As well. He is woefully indiscreet to his friends and how he is then shocked that this stuff comes out into the public arena, I have no idea. But yes, very varied sex life, I would say. Well, let's start with the first one. Who was Byron's first? Because I don't think this was a very nice story, actually. No, it is very sad. And I think with any kind of conversation about Byron at all, you have to bear in mind these sort of formative experiences. And the story seems to be that as a boy of about eight or nine, he was sexually abused by his nursemaid, May. And basically that she was this woman who would get drunk all the time and take him to her bed and how do they phrase it something like toy with his person or something so obviously there's this very strange traumatic experiences that he'll be having of sexual acts early on Mm. and then when he's about 14 or 15 it seems that he might have been abused seduced is the wrong word sort of sexually interfered with I guess by a man in his 20s who was his mother's tenant at Newstead and there's this season a sort of a winter where they're friends and then after that Byron this man he hates him he hates him with a passion and all of a sudden so it seems that something may have gone on there so with both men and women early on he seems to have had quite traumatic sexual experiences basically how much that informs what then happens and his pursuits later on we can't obviously say I mean no we can't say that there have been links made in psychological research haven't there between early abuse and adult promiscuous behaviour, that's pretty well established. Yeah. But for whatever reason, not off to a great start, to say the least. But let's talk about some of his his great loves. Did he fall in love with people? I've struggled with Byron in this because he, the way he words things, he literally says, oh, I fall in love every day with someone different. Right. Obviously, this is a bit tongue-in-cheek, but his understanding of love, I don't know, is different to mine, for sure. Mm. There were definitely people who he carries with him, or the idea of them, for sure, and his relationship with them, he carries with him throughout his life. So there is a young man who he meets at Cambridge when he is 17, and this choir boy is 15, and they seem to have had a love affair, sexual affair, And when this young man, John Edelston, dies a few years later, Byron is inconsolable and he writes, you know, it's the only relationship he got anything from, basically, and this really affects him. But then there are others with women as well, notably his half-sister. Yeah, we'd better talk about that. What was going on there? Yeah, it's not a great story either, (laughs) to be honest. How do we know that? Like, did he put it in a poem? Like, did he write it in a letter? How do we know that that was happening? So some people do dispute it still. It's worth saying that. I'm convinced, personally. Basically, they weren't brought up together. I think that's an important thing to say. They're not brought up as siblings. They kind of meet when Byron's young and then are brought together again in around 1812, 1813. So it's around his early 20s, mid-20s. But they do seem to have fallen quite quickly into what was an incestuous relationship and the thing is that I've said Byron talking quite openly about you know indiscreetly about things in letters and he's writing to his friends almost in a gloaty jokey fashion oh dear that his half-sister Augusta has just had a baby and then he remarks thankfully 
it doesn't look like an ape because if it did, that would have been my fault. I think that's Ooh, a fairly damning. That's pretty damning. He's saying this to Lady Melbourne, who's one of his friends, a socialite older lady. So he's acknowledging parentage, basically, of this daughter. But then the rumours of this incest kind of became public knowledge, especially after his separation from his wife a few years later. Because he did get married, didn't he? He did. And that did not go well. No, I mean, around the time he's sleeping with his sister, he's also negotiating this engagement a bit half-heartedly. And he's quite surprised, I think, when she accepts him. I think he was sort of joking a bit. (laughs) But then, matter of honour, and he needs the money, he ends up engaged to this Annabella, who's, you know, as we've said, she's one of these women who's met him. They've conducted their courtship by letters mostly, so he's presenting himself as he wants. But she very much sees him as a beautiful soul, who's lost and she's very religious and she wants to bring him back to the religious life and she believes she can do that. And then it turns out, of course, that she can't do that. Nope. Because he's Lord Byron. Yeah. And so, yeah, they have one child together, Ada, but then I think a month after she's born, Annabella, his wife, takes the baby, leaves, and then with the encouragement of her family, who she's obviously told these tales of woe to, files for separation. Wow. So why did he flee the country? Because I, was it just that the scandal was getting too much? I think I read somewhere that there was some suspicion he tried to have anal sex with his wife. Hmm. But I can't imagine anyone would put that on a divorce reason, or did they? I don't know. No. So this is in January 1816, where Annabella has finally had enough. They've been married for a year. And their whole marriage has been this very weird... His behaviour has been very weird, to say the least. Cruel, really. I mean, this relationship with his sister, he's kind of flaunted in front of his wife. So there's a story where just after their honeymoon, he invites Augusta, his half-sister, to come and stay with them. And then he's sort of making them embrace him one at a time and saying, who's best? And then occasionally he'll say to Annabella, his wife, you know what, you can leave. (sighs) Me and my sister want to talk and anything I can get from her I can get from you better that kind of wow you know it's all a bit odd so when they do finally separate she's obviously told tales of this weird incesty thing he's got going on with his sister she thinks that he's possibly insane and her parents understandably aren't very happy to hear this no so they say look you can't go back to this man we're gonna sort you out we're gonna get you separated this is fine And so when this happens and sort of explodes into the public arena, there are whispers. One of his friends notes down in his diary or in one of his books that he's tried to sodomize his wife. And that's obviously a step further than adultery and this normal kind of bad boy behavior. You have to have some boundaries. Exactly. (laughs) But then very helpfully, his former flame the brilliant Lady Caroline Lamb sort of sticks her oar in and she's still pissed off that he's dumped her in the first place a couple of years ago. She chats with Annabella and she says, oh, and also, did you know about his affairs with men? He tried to sodomise me as well. And also he's had sex with men since school and on his travels in Greece and in Turkey. So maybe you could use that. Wow. It was Lady Caroline Lamb, wasn't it, who said that Byron was mad, bad and dangerous to know? Yes. Yeah. And I think that was before he'd annoyed her. So that was her being titillated and nice about him. But after their affair had ended, she had a very different point of view about 
in out for revenge yeah revenge for sure but i think genuinely he did these things and was awful to all these women so it's not that she's really making anything up but she's grasping her opportunity i think to get back at him yeah you make your crazy bed byron you lie in it yeah but it's i think if he lived nowadays oh he would never have survived me too would he he would never have survived me too exactly i think he would for sure have been kind of cancelled to use a phrase i hate nowadays but it would be for different reasons and i think back in 1816 when he was felt forced to flee and go to europe and never return to england it was the charges of homosexuality and sodomy that did for him in society today i think it would have been the incest the incest yes yeah and kind of the i'm not sure how strong the records are on this but on you know the kind of youth of some of the people he was mm. opting for while on his travels you know there's him writing love poetry to 12 year old girls and things like that which i mean he was kind of cancelled like he's cancelled in the fact he was kicked out of the country, never to darken our doorstep again. It's true, but then he did continue to be famous and write. He was writing continually. You couldn't escape him <laughs> as a figure, I think. <laughs> he ended up fighting for the Greeks, didn't he? That was where he died. How on earth did that happen? So I think throughout his life, he was obviously famous to us as a poet. He saw himself as a man of action in waiting, who also wrote poetry. And I think into his 30s, he's getting quite, you know, kind of reflective and thinking, I want to actually do something. And I think partly inspired by his grandfather and those all those adventures Mm. that he had. And so he gets involved in political radicalism in Italy for a, a kind of revolutionary movement over there, which kind of falls flat. So then he lands on, oh, I could go over and get involved in the Greek War of Independence and make my name that way. So he goes off hoping to be heroic, really, and then just gets a fever and an illness and is bled horribly, uh, not dealt with very well by his physicians and then dies before he manages to do anything. So not his ideal ending. Oh, it's a weird ending to Byron, isn't it? Yeah, I think he probably wanted, in a way, he would have been quite happy to die. But I think that he wanted to go out in glory. Yes. Not as he did. Do you know what? I could honestly sit here and talk to you about this family for a million years because I just didn't... (laughs) I don't know any of this. And I feel the need to just like keep going back. And what about this person? What about this person? But like... I was just going to say, we've not even spoken about the women. No. Which, can I just say, by the book? <laughs> because there are lots of brilliant women in there as well that we've not even touched on. So... He never really stood a chance, did he? He was always going to be mad, bad and dangerous to know. Hmm. Well, he certainly thought that his obsession with his ancestry from early on, he definitely used his ancestors to say, oh, well... There was an occasion where he got into a brawl at school and his reply to being punished was, oh, well, didn't you know that violence is in the Byron blood because of my great uncle who was a murderer? Wow. My final question to you is obviously this has to be made into a massive Netflix special. It just does because there's so much going on here. Yes. That just has to happen. And then you have to be the historical consultant. That's just that has to happen. (laughs) My final question, who would you want to play Lord Byron? Facially, I think Henry Cavill's quite good, but I've kind of gone off him. Okay. Um, <laughs> I did see I did see a picture last night of Jude Law as a young man in something. Is it the talented Mr. Ripley? And there was a picture of him from the side, and I just thought, that's the Byronic profile there. So if they can, young Jude Law, can I say that? Can we go back in time and enlist him? 
Yeah, definitely. You can definitely say that. Oh, I like that. Emma, you have been amazing to talk to. I don't know if you've diminished my Byron crush anymore. You've certainly complicated it <laughs> for me, but I still have this horrible feeling that I probably still would have shagged him. Yeah. Even in all of this. But if people want to know more about you and more about your book, and they should, because like we've barely scratched the surface of this, where can they find you? Hmm. So, uh, well, my website is emilybrand.co.uk. My books and stuff are on there. I'm also on Twitter as ejbrand and on Instagram as historian underscore Emily. Just making it awkward by having different names on different things. I'm on all of them. Thank you so much for joining me today. You've been an absolute treat. Thank you for allowing me to bang on about the Byrons. (laughs) They're awful and brilliant. (laughs) Anytime. Thank you for listening and thank you so much to Emily for joining me. And if you like what you heard, please don't forget to like, review and subscribe wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Join me again Betwixt the Sheets, the History of Sex, Scandal and Society, a podcast by History Hit. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code Dan Snow at checkout.